Jungian psychology is ripe for existentialism. Kierkegaard has a lot to say about self-deception. He has a lot to say about how resilient our self-deceptions are. He has an awful lot to say about authenticity. You can't read Kierkegaard and not become profoundly unsettled. You know, it's to engage with the text is to really engage with your own sense of who you are and where you are going. Welcome to Psychology and the Cross. In this, our second episode, we will dive deep into the world of Danish philosopher and Christian existentialist Søren Kierkegaard and study his psychology in comparison to C.G. Jung's. As our guide, we have Amy Cook. You most likely don't know who she is, but you really should. She has written, in my mind, one of the best books related to Jungian studies in the recent years. It's named Jung and Kierkegaard, Researching a Kindred Spirit in the Shadows, and was published by Routledge in 2018. The book is not only an excellent examination of Kierkegaard and Jung's psychologies and how they compare and differ, it's also a thought-provoking study that brings light to Jung's own struggle with faith and belief. In a Kierkegaardian manner, Amy addresses fundamental questions to the Jungian field about our relationship to knowledge, experience, religious belief and faith. It's a bold book and a necessary reading for any individual, Jungian or not, in search for truth. Amy graduated with a degree in history from the University of Aberdeen in 2005. She went on to study a master's degree in philosophy and psychoanalysis at Essex University before completing another master in Jungian and post-Jungian studies. Her PhD dissertation from Bangor University became the foundation of this, her first book. Here's our conversation. I've always been really interested in philosophy. You know, I was a history undergraduate, but a terrible one. So I spent all my time reading philosophers, you know, and so it was Schopenhauer, Nietzsche, Kierkegaard. So I've always had this fondness for Kierkegaard. I just think um, if you're a philosophically minded teenager, you're probably going to find something of a of a companion in Kierkegaard. Mm. Um, lots of angst. And, you know, there's a lot of comfort to find in reading, even, yeah, even the most uh, morose philosophies, even Schopenhauer, there's a comfort there. You're not alone. You know, you're despairing. That's good. You're somewhere along the line of progress. Really, when I left uni, it was all about studying philosophy. And it was just by chance I returned to where I grew up in Essex. And I think Essex University is one of the few might be the only one actually in Britain where you can do Jungian study um, but I started off with philosophy and psychoanalysis which I loved and then of course through through that masters I become um, interested in Jung you know as a figure again coming back to this idea of um, there being this suffering that you can be suffering you can be despairing you can be in despair but that's really, that's not a bad thing. And that was the real hook for me and something that I've always been fascinated with.
the people who, who listen to this podcast, yeah, most of them, they, they might have a pretty good idea about Jung and Jung's theory. And I was wondering if you could say a little bit about Kierkegaard, you know, uh, in regards to his, him maybe as a psychologist. Kierkegaard is a figure who, for most part in philosophy, is, the, is, is known for the, to be the father of existentialism. Um, and then people may have heard of him in terms of being a very miserable and gloomy, um, melancholic Dane. Um, but, you know, I don't think it's really, even though existentialism is one of the few philosophies that's really become embedded in, in our culture, you know, there's very few philosophies that have, have made that crossover to be really felt. And, and, you know, you've got artists and poets and writers all really massively infused by this philosophy. Um, but yes, Kierkegaard is, is a ridiculously good psychologist. Um, you know, I think it's really hard to, to talk about Kierkegaard without talking about his personal life, because his is a lived psychology and you know Kierkegaard himself doesn't never called himself a philosopher he really didn't get on with the philosophers of his time they were on the wrong track so he's very much a poet a poet and an author who, who's and he, he says this he says his, his rest and death is is to awaken his reader it's to awaken that inner truth in them you know so if you're gonna take one thing from Kierkegaard, it really is this this reminder that existence isn't about beliefs, words, faults, creeds, systems. It's about you. You must let your your life speak for you. It's what we do. It's what we put into action. Kierkegaard is all about not telling you how to live. You know, he's very silent in that respect. What, what he does is he uses um, Socratic irony and very clever characters in his works that reflect a certain stage of existence and there's a conflict between them. And so you're, you're, you're reading his work and what you're seeing is you, you find yourself reflected back and that's what he wants. He wants you to feel unsettled. He wants to awaken something deeper in you. I think we'll talk about Kierkegaard where he ends up and it's not a path that I certainly would want to follow his path. Um, it's f full of pain, full of loneliness, um, but he seems to have found some joy in that place, you know, because, you know, we get to the end of his life and he is very serene and he just feels that it's his time. Um, he's not raging against anything. Mm. He's not raging against what he died. He talks a lot. He diagnoses himself a lot. You know, the fall in his flesh, the misrelation between his spirit and his body. In the introduction of, of your book, you, you summarize also some point of commonalities between that you find between Sigi Jung and, and Kierkegaard. Could you speak a little bit about that to begin with, just the commonalities that one can find in their psychological theory or life projects? 
Yeah, so I think just the very common existentialist themes that run through Jung and Kierkegaard. We've got authenticity, the, this idea that there is an authentic, authentic self and a false self, and that common to both of them is this understanding that so many of us live in despair of the self that we are for whatever reasons you know and um so self-deceptions the resistance of our self-deceptions we find that a common a common point in both their work um and and i guess the passage to becoming a true self is one that you that that involves suffering and holding on to that suffering and seeing it through and and not not um, relegating it or, or seeking to medicate it away. And I kind of think, especially in today's world, not only are these ideas like completely relevant, I just think there's so, so much, so much more needed. What a spirit. Spirit is the self. Help us to sort of elaborate on on Jung uh, versus Kierkegaard's uh, view of the self. Maybe starting with Kierkegaard to see how they relate or how they might differ their view on what it is to be a self or what a self is then that is in in becoming. Sure. <clears throat> so the self in becoming is this is what connects them both. The self is in a state of becoming. It's becoming a self your true self, your true authentic self, which is a heal, which is going to heal you. Um, you can't develop a religious attitude without this development of self to its full potential. Um, so the, the, the self becomes really quite a holy, a holy concept. There's a really difficult argument to make about the relational self, particularly in Kierkegaard. There is a relational self because, of course, Kierkegaard is influenced and can influence others. So there's a relationship. But ultimately, the self has to relate to God. And that God is very much a transcendent God. It's very much the other. Now, Jung, and this I think things get quite controversial for theologians, that God that exists somewhere outside of us and is a transcendental being. Well, Jung sort of puts this um, this God in, into the self of a capital S. So the relationship to this God self is what matters. And um, I mean, that's a really... We talk about bold ideas. That's bold. You know, that that immediately is not cool. It's it's got it gets people's backs up, doesn't it? It's um 
I mean, one of the wonderful things about Jung is just how wide his knowledge is of religion. You know, Kierkegaard, we don't see any further than the Christianity that he, he grows up in. You know, this is a Lutheran Christianity of Denmark. Um, but Jung's not as closed off as that. Um, so he talks about, you know, the, it's not so much the religion, but the religious. And that, that can be, that can end in the figurehead of a god. Or it could be a path to salvation. Or, and this is what I really, really love, it can be anything dangerous and beautiful enough to give your life meaning. Mm. And I just think that's just the most amazing statement. Because, of, of course, in, in today, so many people can't find meaning in, in their religions as, as institutionalised religions. Because both Kierkegaard and Jung, I mean, I know I've wandered off from the self, but I think this is an important, important point, is that they are completely at a loss with institutionalised religion. You know, they both see them lacking something very, very fundamental for the development of the self. And um, where for Jung, this is very much the symbolic that's missing. And and for Kierkegaard, you could say it's the suffering of being a Christian that's eroded. But you could also say that, you know, the Danish church have, have made being a Christian so easy. That it really had lost the meaning, you know, it had, it had lost its vitality, you know, for, being Christian for Kierkegaard isn't sitting in a comfy armchair and becoming very settled. And I think that's the state he thought a lot of his, his companions were in. They were under the illusion that they were Christian by being born into a Christian society and being baptised. That, but that's not the end of it you know it's it's your life it's what you do it's the essence of your existence I suppose I've done I've done you a disservice really by not talking about Kierkegaard's stages of existence um because he's got three stages and the first of that is the aesthetic and that's probably where most of us will find ourselves. This is really governed by pleasure. You know, we run from anything that fills us with dread. Um, we make no commitments to ourselves or to other people. Um, so his point is you have to hurry up and despair because you will find no happiness until you do so. And um, I mean, you can just see it in, in our modern day culture. Uh, if people feel any kind of anxiety, they've got their mobile phone. They're, 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 and then they, it's kind of like, um, it's almost like a dummy, you know. You get your mobile phone out and you scroll and you're on Facebook and you distract yourself. That's the point in the aesthetic realm. You're always distracting yourself. Um, you just don't want to sit with that restlessness that defines human nature. And I think that's a concept, this restlessness that we see in Kierkegaard and in Jung. So to, to kind of flip this over now um, to Jung, 
you you would he would say that this would be um you know how how he says this doesn't he that i haven't seen a patient over the age of 35 who who's um whose problem wasn't to do with having lost a religious outlook having lost this overall sense of meaning of life's purpose very much a second half you know second half project of life isn't it not for everybody some of us make it the first half and then worry about careers later you know but um you've got this sense of in the estate phase you're even in despair because you don't know it and this is absolutely the most base level despair because you're in a state of spiritlessness and you might look at that in Jung and see something like a neurosis there's something that is missing you know um so whereas Jung proposes a process of individuation to come to this meaning meaningful existence um Kierkegaard's got his stages of existence which is a lot more dramatic you know each stage is mediated for a crisis so eventually the idea is that the in the aesthetic fear we simply can't hide from the boredom and the emptiness and that dread will bubble up and we'll have to start asking ourselves questions you know what are we going to do with our life who are we why are we here you know um and then that's where there's a there's a there's a movement over to the ethical and the ethical is pretty much um that you know that second stage of life where you focus on careers and families commitments you know it is you know it's very much about obligation and finding your place in society um but that can't in the end Kierkegaard would argue that too the meaningless of that will will too evade and evoke dread and ultimately you have to make that leap of faith that leap of faith to God to rest transparently in God and I think that's the point for me where I'm struggling um it's a very very in in Kierkegaard's writing it becomes very hard to understand because it's about the absurd so you have to transcend the the ethical in in this absurd paradoxical leap um so he talks about um Abraham and Isaac and Abraham sacrificing of Isaac as as this ultimate act of faith because it contains this paradox Isaac understands that he's killing Isaac will kill him but at the same time he has this faith that God will restore Isaac back to him which is absurd you know it's just not possible but that's the embodiment of faith and I think you, you're leading us into this this uh, foundational question. I think uh, one of them around uh, faith versus knowledge and uh, Jung uh, and Kierkegaard's respective views on that and and where they base themselves. Uh, is is it something you you could speak of a bit? Because you write things so articulate around that in the book. I find uh, 
about yeah the the question of faith versus knowledge and as you're uh, as you're also quoting Jung saying in that uh, BBC interview I I don't believe I I know yes Jung's faith I think that's a really tricky thing I I I'd just be full full confession I don't understand um I don't understand where he's coming from I mean for Jung he, he repeats a lot this idea of the original religious experience, this double aspect. Um, and of course, I think he also he even says something like, um, I can only commune with, uh, with people who have had this experience of God. And um, for someone who, who has never had an experience of God, I, I, I struggle to even imagine what it might look like. Um, I've, I've read the, um, the Red Book. Um, I get the sense that that is his original experience of God is in there. And I mean, I don't understand it. I, I mean, I wouldn't pretend to. Um, but yes, so the BBC interview, I don't believe, I know. Um, and it's a very... I find it a very bizarre statement, um, particularly when you consider how Jung had this love for the esoteric and for paradox. And in no other scenario does he struggle with belief. You know, it's a therapist's belief and hope for that his his patient can can heal and um, progress along the stages of individuation no problem here but when it comes to God he's he's just he completely just obliterates the idea of belief and it's a very strong statement it's a really strong statement and I I just feel I can't really do a service to to understand it because I, I can't come from a place where I can even conceive what he might be getting at Um, But in my book, I do make some conclusions about what might be going on. Um, I think um, I think it'd be quite well known to to people, um, Jung's issues with his dad. Well, not not with his dad as much as maybe his father's religious doubts. You know, he kind of kept imploring his dad as a child to give him. Give him the give him the he, he wants the he wants to know why he should believe in god his dad just kind of says, you just believe and he starts to see this as quite a hollow hollow empty faith he doesn't believe his his his, his father has this faith at all he's just um a bit of a lost soul going through the motions um but then I find it hard not to see that same dogmatic response in his own um, statement, really. I, I have a quote from you from your book here where, where you say it. Uh, you say that with his statement, I do not believe I know Jung is standing patron- patronizingly so outside of his father's religion. 
Such statements seethe with unconscious doubt and indicate the clear need to quieten uncertainty by dogmatically defending religious experience. Faith and knowledge through personal experience exist so uncomfortably in Jung's thinking that to my mind, this really does limit the, deg the degree to which we can view Jung as a sensitive and sympathetic spiritual pilgrim. Yes. Well, he, it's just so deeply strange, isn't it? I mean, Jung, he so brings to life this dialectical process. You know, you have to hold two things in conflict to birth the third, you know. And here we find he, he can't hold the, these two things. He can't hold them. He, it's very much an everything and nothing response. Um, sorry, I just picked that up. And yeah, it, it's something that it's, it's just very intriguing. I mean, my, my conclusion is by no means the only one um, at all. You, you write there in the conclusion, although Jung believes himself to have discovered God alive and active within the unconscious, I do not think he managed to recapture his lost faith in God. It would certainly seem that his attempt to heal the split who his father and his father's religion was ultimately unsuccessful. Mm. Gosh. Yeah, I think I kind of stand by that because I mean, I think if you were, uh, I think it's so fundamental to, I think, any religion, not just Christianity, but any religion, faith has to have doubt. You can't have an enlivened faith without doubt. Um, and um, I think I struggle with, as soon as, I, th I think this is a personal problem, as soon as anybody comes at anything with any certainty, I mean, to that that strength of certainty, um, I, I, I'd be inclined to take a step back, just instinctively, just take a step back. Um, but then at the same time, you know, this could just be Jung's attempt to completely reimagine um, what Christianity is. You know, because you can be sympathetic to this idea of undergoing the original experience, whatever that is. Um, and of course, that 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 is has to be some sort of confrontation within the unconscious it doesn't necessarily have to you know lead to the conclusion that I draw but I think maybe if we were to look at it from a Jungian if you come up from a Jungian um, aspect I think you would have to find that a troubling statement there, there's no there's no dialectical process going on here
Because there is a little bit, I mean, I, I know this is straying a little bit further now, but there is that aspect to analytical psychology that could be said to replace the need for religion. I mean, if you look at it as a project that one finds their self, their, their purpose, and a meaningful existence, it's, in, in, individuation can, encompasses all of that. You know, I, I don't, I don't know whether I'm not, I'm not entirely sure that Jung's wanting to heal Christianity is is as pure motivation as it might seem. I think there is a sense. I think you really can. Well. Not with any certainty. There is a sense from to my mind that he does go beyond Christianity and and does seek to replace it with something else. But why not? There's nothing wrong with that, you know. Nothing wrong with that at all. But what would you see is the left of Christianity in, in Jung's project then? What sort of left, what is Christian about this Jungian psychology as you understand it? Um, very little. I mean, I don't know. It's, um, if you look at Kierkegaard, he doesn't arrive to the faith of his knight of faith. He identifies himself as being a knight of resignation. He hasn't quite got, he hasn't quite made it in terms of faith. But it, it's still, with Kierkegaard, you can follow. You can see where he's coming from. There is no sense of you have to be certain. And, and of course, the religious experience is extremely important to Kierkegaard, but it doesn't supersede belief. It doesn't, because that's the point with Kierkegaard, doesn't it? Experience and belief aren't going to get you to that leap of faith that you need to get to. There's something more. There's something that is inexpressible that you can't reduce to just to rational thinking there is just something else whereas when Jung arrives at this point of talking about faith that's not there anymore there isn't any space it's just you have the experience and you know but it, it just seems so alien how could you have any any kind of experience and be so utterly sure in that experience, what you have experienced. Where's the framework around it to make sense and to contemplate and reflect and... But isn't isn't a part of that related to his, uh, the idea of individuation or, or Jung's rendering of the Metatio Christi? Like, isn't that where he speaks of the of life or faith in something that goes beyond an individual 
numinous experience of sorts. You got a very different um, imitation of Christ in Jung. It's very individual. You carry your own cross. Don't carry um, Jesus's cross. You must carry your own. You know, it's, it's a completely subjective experience. Which, which, you know, that's probably a good thing. I don't think we want to follow Kierkegaard down his, his um, imitation of Christ, which is literally to suffer and suffer and ape the stigmata and suffer some more and live in complete hostility to everything around you. Does not sound fun. But um, you're also saying that he found uh, peace. Yeah. yeah. But then for Kierkegaard, these, thing, these two things aren't in conflict at all you know it's not something that perhaps you or I could live with um I mean to Kierkegaard he stops going to church he doesn't have relationships around him um he even stops taking what he refers to as his people baths where he would walk the streets of Copenhagen and stop and have a natter with people he stops all that because um it was an incident with the with the uh, magazine, a magazine there. It's a fight he started because he decided that because they liked him, he couldn't be terribly important because uh, the magazine that took people down and kind of equivalent of our heat magazine. So he upsets them so that they attack him. And then, of course, everybody else attacks him. And he's absolutely happy now because this is to be Christ-like, it's to be, it's to be mocked and to be scorned. And if the world's not being hostile to you, you're not really living the life of Christ. So in Jung, we see a much healthier, I think, a much healthier imitation of Christ. Um, but there's no conflict here because, yes, Kierkegaard, he, there's, he doesn't, he doesn't he goes he dies quite peacefully he's quite serene he's quite confident in his work you know this was his purpose was to leave this body of work that was going to challenge people out of their self-deceptions and into a true life um that that he you know that he's still melancholic He's still a deeply angsty, anxiety-ridden individual, but that's that's maybe his truth. And um, I think I don't know. I just think for Kierkegaard, he always allows he always allows for there being something else. Would you say that Jürgen Kierkegaard can sort of also complement each other? I mean, the, the subtitle of your book is uh, Researching a Kindred Spirit in the Shadows. Can one speak about them somehow complementing each other or are there ways that you feel like some, some of Kierkegaard could give life to, to the Jungian world or, or the other way around in your mind? 
Yeah, that's a really good question. Really tricky question. Um, I mean, Jungian psychology is ripe for existentialism. And I think if you came at it from a, it doesn't have to be a strictly speaking Kierkegaardian angle, but really draw out them existential themes. I think you have a really, you could have a really interesting fusion. Um, Kierkegaard has a lot to say about self-deception. He has a lot to say about how resilient our self-deceptions are. He has an awful lot to say about authenticity. And I don't I don't think that if 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 you could hold the two together, that can't fail to enliven things, you know. But I think I I mean I'm gonna be a little bit provocative. I think what Jungian psychology really needs is a Kirkengard. You know, I mean, and I'm coming from a Kierkegaard as as a Socratic figure, somebody who is going to be an absolute nuisance. I mean, Kierkegaard understood he was an absolute nuisance. He thought that was his mean. That's that's the whole reason he's here, being a nuisance. But he's at the same time he's challenging. He's challenging us. He's unsettling us. You can't read Kierkegaard and not become profoundly unsettled, you know. It's to engage with the text is to really engage with your own sense of who you are and where you are going. Um, so to my mind, more than anything, I'd love to see analytical psychology find itself a Kierkegaard. Someone who's going to shake it up a little bit, get everyone questioning things, you know, not not I think there can be a tendency to always want to defend some pretty big union concepts and always go back to the original writings and a um, little bit of hero worship. You know, Jung's great. I'm not saying he's not great. Yeah. Could we speak a little bit about Jung's uh, yeah, critical reception of Kierkegaard and, you know, Jung's view on Kierkegaard? Because, again, many people listening to this podcast, they might not know that much uh, about it. And if they know anything, they might just know that he didn't like Kierkegaard or there was something negative. Um, Jung's reception of Kierkegaard is profoundly negative. He doesn't seem to see any commonalities between their projects which is astounding um because even if you just uh, the most basic of um concepts in Kierkegaard is just it it's like lib Kierkegaard is properly liberating it's it's not about what's written down what theories you're following what philosophy you you feel or think it's about what you think you know this is your truth don't live somebody else's life you can only live yours and um for the, for his time he he is a unique voice here um emphasizing this subjective truth that is so important to individual development 
And um, Jung, I mean, it's hard to say how much Jung actually knew of Kierkegaard. Um, but in 19, 1920s, Kierkegaard's really very popular. Um, so I, I can't believe he didn't have a good enough knowledge of Kierkegaard. Um, but yeah, Jung reduces him to a religious neurotic, um, a part of the misery institute that has become um, not Christianity altogether, but maybe just a certain kind of Protestant um, religion. I think that's where that misery institute plays in. Because you also do uh, interpretation or uh, yeah, an analysis of or, you know a possible way of viewing this negative reception, and you speak of the sort of shadowy relationship between the two, or at least Kierkegaard as a sort of shadow figure to Jung. So I think I I come at Kierkegaard as a shadow figure for Jung in terms of the fact that. Jung simply can't see anything positive in Kierkegaard's work. Um, and I think it's very telling in, in calling him a religious neurotic that even then he can't see any anything that might be vital in that, you know, any vitality, any kind of anything positive. And of course, Jung's all about neurosis as not being this wholly negative experience um it has its own meaning you know it's its own communication um and it's very much neurosis is very much our it, it, neurosis is it's it's through it's through neurosis that we're going to arrive at a more authentic sense of our own selves um and so he just completely shuts off and closes down, um, writing to people that, you know, I think he writes to Kunzli, something along the lines of that, you find him frightful, warms the cockles of my heart. And I, I think, you know, obviously I, I, I come from a position of thinking Kierkegaard's wonderful. And it, it's really not difficult to see um, how much of, of a shared project they have. You know, there aren't, they, they, they are differences and some of them differences are, are big, but at the heart of it, the, they're so similar what they're trying to do, to awaken something that is profoundly you and you alone. And then, I think this is where it gets a little bit, a little bit more tenuous is where I connect this to the relationship that each has to their fathers. And how Kierkegaard at the end of the day very much sits within his father's faith. He's resolved the difficulties that he's experienced in his father's faith. Um, but he he doesn't transgress what was a very familiar sense of faith to both him, his father and, and Christianity, whereas in Jung um, we see this uncomfortable 
resolution of the problem of his father's faith. And I say uncomfortable, it's only uncomfortable to me. <laughs> I think there's plenty of people who wouldn't see any any issue with this. Of course, you want the to undergo the, the, the religious experience and that should be everything. Um, it's just I happen to think I don't agree that it is it is everything. It's not the last word. I've been wondering about the sources we have about Paul Jung's life. If they go beyond Jung's sort of description of his father's personality, or if it's mostly based on, on that, that we sort of, you know, have this image of the, of the, of the suffering, uh, helpless uh, man who, who, who never found uh, peace. I, I don't know if, if, if you know. Uh, I certainly would have to say I'm, I'm guilty of only drawing on um, Jung's description of his father. Um, I, I've never come across anything myself in, in studying um, studying the PhD or even writing a book that went beyond that. But, you know, I think that's a really good point. that Jung's understanding of the Metatio Christi carries with it the implication that traditional Christianity has misunderstood both Christ and the Incarnation. The Incarnation continues in and through the individual who must understand that his relation to the infinite is to realize the Incarnation as an ongoing and continuing process, according to Jung. To exist as an authentic individual requires that we break away from and go beyond conventional Christianity in pursuit of a higher religion. So there we are again also with the with that with that question of you know um, what you mentioned before is analytical psychology sort of surpassing or replacing Christianity or is it to be seen as a sort of reparation or a restoration of some original truth where I would think uh, Jesus. Uh, still maybe would play some central part. But don't you think the interesting thing is it can be both? It really just depends how you approach it. I mean, if you're somebody with a with a Christian disposition, you you can read that that statement, that the change in, in what it is to imitate Christ. It's not a literal imitation, it's the deepest, truest expression of Christ, but through yourself yeah and that's I mean comparing that to to how when, when Jung's talking about his experience of religion I can't follow that but I can follow this I can follow where we're departing from conventional Christianity here yeah I don't think it's that I don't I think I don't think it's that bold but I can follow it but in terms of whether it's a, a, a process that is about reparation or a process that's superseding religion, it, it, it's, an, it's an eye of a roar. Because I think that's why Jung attracts just such a wide, diverse range of people. 
Um, and, and whether uh, ultimately he meant it as one or the other, I think is unanswerable. Jung knows, none of us do, but he does. Um, but you're also was... speaking, yeah, you, but you're also referring to the dream that I discussed with Marie Stein about the Max Seller's dream with the building the temple, or that each one is sort of in their analysis doing building an individual pillar and Jung's uh, prophetic interpretation of that dream as a sort of vision for a new religion to take place in five, six hundred years. Oh, you, yes, you, yeah, refer, yeah. you refer to that uh, to that dream in uh, when you speak of the Imitatio Christi and, and the idea of uh, maybe uh, needing to break away from conventional Christianity in pursuit of, of a higher religion. Yeah? I mean, do you understand Jung's project as a continuation of a sort of Christian tradition or that it's a break with it in, in your mind? Um, my, my opinion is very unqualified because I'm not a Christian. Um, so, but I struggle to see it as anything but a breakaway. But then I, I don't see that as a negative thing. I only see that as a negative thing when he's talking about um, belief not being necessary. It's experience over belief. Um, I struggle. I, I, fi I find that quite. Um, I think there's something quite unhealthy to that. Whereas to say to somebody. Um, you know, to put the emphasis on imitating Christ in a way that is very uniquely your own imitation. Um, I really find a lot to like about that. There's an ideal there, I think a good ideal to look up to. An ideal? Yeah, as in you know, Jung's using Christ as an example of individuation, isn't he? Um, and the same is true for Kierkegaard. But whereas for, I don't see Kierkegaard's imitation as something to be, I certainly wouldn't advise anybody to follow him down that road. Um, but in Jung's rendering of the imitation, there is something a lot more gentle, a lot more gentle and perhaps even a little bit more authentic. Authentic in terms of the individual, not authentic to Christianity, 